Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you'd like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morning sun underscore fellow traveler or click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you and safe traveling. Howdy. Welcome back. What up? Today is March 14th. Wait, today's Pi Day. I just realized. Fourteenth, <laughs> three, one, four. <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's all coming together. I don't know what that means. Circular. What's what's circles? What's the theology of circles? Tell me. Holy cow! You want to dive right into that? I can talk about that a long time. Really? Yeah. All circles. I love this. I don't know who wrote this, but it's. Are you familiar with Me Without You, the band? No. I think you would really enjoy them. Okay. Uh, Aaron Weiss and his brother started this band in like the late '90s, and they're kind of like very poetic but like progressive metal-ish. Sometimes they're folky. They're very eclectic in their sound. Like their earlier albums were very heavy, but the lyrics are so well-written. And the cool thing about Aaron Weiss and his brother is that they were raised by their mother, who's Jewish, and their father, who's uh, Muslim. So nice. they have, they're very Abrahamic in their understanding of everything. And, and they, but they also like are Christian, Christian adjacent too. So like, you know, a lot of the, the uh, imagery they use is like Old Testament and they have some like um, Islamic mysticism in there too. It's really cool. But there's, but there's one song um, called All Circles. I'll have to send it to you. <clears throat> but all circles presuppose they end where they begin, but only in their leaving can they ever come back around. All circles presuppose. And then it just keeps going. And that's the whole yeah. song. The whole sounds song perfect. just keeps looping, looping. So it's no, really that sounds cool. great. It's kind of, that's a, uh... That's really how I've, I've been talking a lot about this recently, but it's, it's how I, what, my, one of my favorite models or images is the spiral, or I'm mm. really, really into spiral dynamics. You're probably familiar, I would assume, a little bit, maybe? You know, I've, a lot of the stuff I have just heard you guys say in passing mm-hmm. in your conversations, but I haven't gotten a lot of definitions for these things. So I think that's kind of the reason why I wanted to talk to you, too, is like, what do you mean by all these terms that you guys, uh, by you guys, for anybody who's <laughs> listening? I mean, we have this friend group that we we discuss in a group chat over Signal, and it's this group of random people from all over the country mm-hmm. and who are nerds about theology and philosophy and whatever else. Talking a lot about AI these days. Yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah, well, most of Spiral Dynamics isn't like one of my 
a lot of things I talk about are my completely made up terms. Mm. Viral dynamics is not one of those. Um, oh yeah. And it's a really, it's a really easy thing to uh, Google image search and there's better ones or not, but I mean, essentially the spiral, there's colors that are associated with it and it's, um, there are individual, I, I would say there's, you can look at it individually or you can look at it corporately and culturally because there's these kind of, uh, it, it's like an evolution of consciousness or an evolution of being almost. And so they color coordinate it to kind of eliminate better or worse or hierarchy. It's just kind of, but a spiral, the reason I like spiral and it's tied to circles is that there is a circularity to it. So it's like the me without you song that you're talking about. Or T.S. Eliot, he, the end of Little Getting, this poem has this great thing of, or there's anything, you know, like you step into a river, you never step into the same river twice, or like, you, you know, you leave your home and come back and you find it, it's the same, but it's new. Um, so there's all these ideas, or uh, John Verveke will quote this Zen, uh, or uh, idea of like, you know, when you... Or, or it's essentially like you see the mountains and the rivers and then you leave and you come back and the mountains are now mountains and the rivers are rivers. It's like they're the same, but there's been a change. Or like before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So it's kind of like there's a circularity to a lot of things. And um, but But then there's also, with a spiral, there's also difference. So like depending on your frame of reference and how you're looking at it, it can look like a circle. But really there's a there's a movement to it. There's a progression to it. There's an evolution to it. Like on a two on a two dimensional level, it's just a circle. Right. And like you look at it from the other dimension, it's like, oh, it's actually moving in a direction. It's going somewhere. It's not staying still. Right. And right. Even Around a back, mystical center. And even uh, when it comes back, it's not at the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, well, I mean, like it is, but it's not. And and what's mm -hmm. interesting is there's a like I've had a lot of these things in my life um, where there's certain experiences that I've had in my life, in my story, in my history, and my perspective on it and how I looked at it at the time was a certain way. And then, you know, you give me 10, 15 years and I come back to that same situation and I've had some epiphany or some revelation or some, some shift, some, um, you could call it act of grace or uh, metanoia or whatever. And, and then you come back and you look back at that exact same experience and you see it in a completely different light and in a completely different way. Um, and it almost gets into the, I mean, there's a lot of ideas connected into that eternal recursion, but yet, um, you know, multi-causality, you know, it's not necessarily just like this linear causality. You can have something happen where <clears throat> a, a change in perspective actually changes your history i mean you you look at it completely differently you know um so i love yeah circles man there's a lot there all right well it is pi day i mean it's it's apt that we speak of yeah. it isn't it um yeah it's fin it's interesting the whole spiral thing too like coming back you you know what i think of too is like you know i'm a musician so when i play a song or when i play a certain um riff or something um it's not the first time i've ever played that riff i've probably played it a bunch of times before but each time i play it it's um solidifying itself even more into my muscle memory and it's mm -hmm. like <clears throat> so i'm coming back to that point of this, on the circle but i'm in a different place on the spiral like in a 
another dimensional direction if that even yeah. makes sense like it's no like, for sure <laughs> but same thing with like everything else in our life we're always learning and changing we're always coming back to moments that are very similar or you know almost fractal in a sense yeah and and everything's somewhat related there's a memory and there's a resonance to that you know there's a vibration or a harmony or something where you're you're coming back to it but like the greater the greater the resonances um the more impactful they are like one of my i think this is connected to this but one of my favorite big thinkers out there um who i mean he's known but people i think people sleep on him he's got most of the most of like the greatest stuff in there. It's just, uh, but is Rupert Sheldrake. And um, he has this theory, he, which is his own unique theory called morphic resonance. And, um, and the basic idea is that, let me see if I can come up with the definition of it, but it's essentially that there are, um, there are these fields of uh, habit and memory that manifest um that through that kind of instinctually manifest patterns uh, throughout space and time, but they're independent of, of space and time. <clears throat> so like within science, he's a scientist, he's a biologist uh, primarily, but he also has his degree in philosophy of science. So he's one of those scientists that actually understands philosophy, which is nice. Um, but along like mo mainstream modernist scientists kind of discredit him, but he's fantastic and getting increasingly more respect, I think. So this theory is kind of like the simplest way to think about it is like, why does, if we think about things scientifically, you know, we know how pro proteins form and we know how certain molecules can form, but we don't know how necessarily organs form or like how a, you know, an embryo, like a giraffe becomes a giraffe or a walrus becomes a walrus or a human being becomes a human being. We can't really map out that mechanism. And Rupert Sheldrake's basic theory is that, well, there are patterns, there are fields that, that have instinct and memory in them that in which these things participate that like have these forms and resonances over time. And he has a lot of experiences, ex experiments illustrating it. But what it made me think of is crystals I can't remember why I was thinking of this, but crystals and resonances, because like something that will happen, and I'm, I'm a chemist by training, this is my education, but he says the first time a new crystalline structure is formed, because we, we've invented different crystals, um, the first time that it forms, it actually really resists taking shape. It's really hard to get the crystal to form, but once it's formed, it becomes easier and easier and faster and faster, and it's interesting because it happens independently of space and time. So like you, you maybe form a crystal the first time ever that it's ever been formed by some scientist in North America. And then all of a sudden, like some scientist in, in Africa or Australia can form the same crystal, like eat more easily. Or like he's, he's done these experiments with rats in a, in a maze where they have to figure out this maze and a lot and to get the cheese or whatever. And after they, it takes them a long time to figure out the rats, but then once a rat of the same species, like the same morph morphology, the same exact species. Once these rats figure it out, other rats across the world that have no genetic connection to these rats will also figure out the maze more quickly. So it's kind of like, it's crazy. Or like the, have you ever heard about like the one minute mile? Uh, so like someone, we, we thought for a while, no one would ever run a mile. No human being would ever run a mile in like sub four minutes. 
but then all of a sudden a human being did it and then all of a sudden a bunch of people started doing it like once that line was broke a lot of people started doing it you know that kind of on a thinking about like the history of religion you know did did the abrahamic tradition do something that caused the rest of the world to start moving in that direction you know what i mean you know what I mean? Well, I think like, so. You could think of, of that the same way. Yeah, like, it, like a new religious crystal formed, and then all yeah. of a sudden, all of a sudden, a bunch mm. started forming. No, that's I think really that. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's true, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and man, there's there's so much there that is just so much too much for our brains to even comprehend. But still, it's fascinating. You go down the wormhole, down the spiral, <laughs> right? Yeah. Rupert Sheldrake's one of those guys that like he's his ideas, I think, are when they're new to you, they they can either appear wacky or weird. But man, it's but see, even that the longer you sit with them, the more you're just like you start resonating with it. And you're like, holy cow. Yeah. Like that really makes a, that really makes a lot of sense and helps me understand a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, it kind of <clears throat> the same way with even like the I want to say like there's almost like consciousnesses not in like the new age sense but like there's there's ways of thinking and, and frameworks of thinking that you become conscious of you know as you mm-hmm. study as as you branch out and um and it's so um evident like when you talk to someone who's very much very dualistic you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like oh wow you you are a different plane of existence than i am you know what i mean like you see yeah. things so black and white and I, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and it, I hate to be elitist about it, but there's just, it's like, it gets frustrating because then you almost can't really even talk to them because they're speaking a different language and you're speaking a different language. You know what I mean? No, totally. Yeah. There's a, well, that's really applicable actually to even spiral dynamics because it's a, um, what you're talking about, and I forget the color coding, but I think you're talking about essentially, I think it's considered, I think it's the orange consciousness, and I forget the names of them. Um, but there's a certain cultural consciousness that that starts, because one of the one of the things about the spiral, and my buddy Dan, shout out to him, he was explaining this to me, is one of the ways you can understand spiral dynamics is this oscillation between... Um, kind of the individual and the collective. So you're either seeing things very, very individualistically or very collectively and you go back and forth. And so, or very dualistically maybe and non-dually and you kind of oscillate back and forth as this movement goes up the spiral. And I think there's a kind of, it's either green or orange. There's a mode of consciousness that you're talking about that I think sees, um, it wouldn't be the orange. It'd be like the pre one that sees things in a very black and white. Like what you're talking about is maybe an orange or something. And then there's like a yellow, which is very integrative work. Well, that's what's cool about spiral dynamics is eventually you get to this point, I think. And it's not even an elitist thing because it's integrative is you, you get to a place of, of somewhat integrating all the previous. Cause that's one of the things about the spiral is like all the previous things are within the yellow, but you, you can see them all clearly and almost kind of a non-judgmental way because you've gone through this spiral enough to see just like oh when i was like 20 i was an idiot when Mm. i was 30 i was an idiot when i was 40 i was an idiot and you've just done that enough to just be like like i've had that experience a bunch you know like i was a calvinist for a long time Mm -hmm. and then i went through like a pretty like 
Calvinism is like the God of Calvinism is uh, evil. <laughs> and like, I went through that phase and then I've come back around to it in a way where it's almost like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that I self-identify as a Calvinist. It depends what you mean by that. Um, I definitely don't in like this mechanistic linear causative way where things are very black and white. Um, like it's more like a George McDonald Calvinist or something, I guess. Like if you want to say that. Um, but even, yeah, but I don't even know how you'd really like that's pretty amorphous and nebulous, you know. Yeah. Um, well, this is what but, it gets but you down come to. Back, it's like you know, it's like um, on the surface you have like Calvinism and then whatever else there is, but like even just that its own. Like I get tired of that whole discussion, the whole debate of Calvinism versus yeah, Arminianism same, because same. it's like it's on a way um sur more surf it's closer to the surface level of the spiral you know what i mean where yeah, it's like yeah. as the deeper you go it's like that debate doesn't even matter like it's no it's like you're and this is what i get frustrated with it's like um what is the what is the level at which you know the early church fathers you know the early church and even the writers of the new testament even some of like the prophets and whatnot in the old testament like what is the level where were they on the spiral well when we try to take the top of the spiral and try to in um understand it from understand the bottom of the spiral from the top of the spiral when it just turns into black and white you know um it turns into yeah. either or and it doesn't yeah it doesn't um you can't actually even comprehend what is actually happening there no i think i think that's no that's a really good point i think that's fundamentally true it's the it's my favorite lewis quote what you see in here depends a lot upon where you're standing it also depends upon the kind of person you are there's like or like peugeot will talk a lot about being initiated in something like part of part of what you see in here and what you know is necessarily connected to your embodiment the, the time in which you live, the cultures in which you live, the nation in which you live, the language in which you speak, um, all of these different um, factors, I think of it as like a Russian doll or nested eggs, all these different communities and fields in which you participate. And you cannot, there is no, Paul Vanderkay likes this word, there is no monarchical vision or there is no objective view from nowhere where you can just like abstract yourself from that and just be like, well, what did the, what did first century people think about this? Or what did church fathers think about this? You can't do that. You can't ever know what they thought about that. There is, that isn't such a thing because you'll make all these anachronisms or you'll impose your consciousness or the way that you see things on them. And it becomes a, again, that's what I mean. Like the judgment at some mm -hmm. point, the judgment goes away because like we see things differently than them. And probably better in some ways and probably worse in some ways. Yeah. But what in which ways do we see things better? In which ways do we see things worse? You know, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't that's know what the, I don't know. That's a difficult place of discernment. And ultimately, like, I think that's like ultimately the veil that um, we're not allowed to cross, you know, because then we would be God and we would no longer need God. We we try to usurp him. And um, but like, oh, what was I just I was just thinking a thought. Like this conversation is just uh, bringing so much out of my mind in um, right now. So basically, um, oh, what was I th saying is like you know when I say the words like what did the what did the early church fathers think? What did they believe? Mm -hmm. Well, what ha ends up happening, and I'll admit this when I go back and read them or look at what they said, I end up just cherry picking what I like anyway. And for sure, it, you know what I mean. So 
it's hard for to sure. get any level of discernment. It's hard to really discern what's actually true and actually um, what's actually true or actually error or actually just like half truths or. And then there's obviously the issue of translation, like I and mean, translation and interpretation, you know, and. Um, yeah. Well, I think this gets to, to this is like an it's illustrative of the point of non-judgment, though, is because like even because I think you fall into that. It's really easy. Another way to say objectivism, the way I like to talk about it, is this either orism. You know, do we see it correctly or do they see it correctly? And I think that leads to what I call the exclusivist religion of the right side of history. It's just like this line that I've crossed. You know, I see my past. It's like the circle. And it's just like I've moved past this, but then everybody behind me is wrong. Was that correct? No, of course it's not correct. And so like even even discerning what is true, like to, to your point of saying that, and because you go back and you selectively do it, you know, you pick the things that you like and not the things you don't like. Uh, but how can you trust that? And so like even within yourself, I think it's healthy to get to a place of non-judgment where you're just like, and this is very like my friend Sherry will talk about this because of Douglas Harding. He talks about the as is world versus the as if world. Um, or Lewis talks about this in a space trilogy in a different way, but it's kind of like if somebody's in either or mode, well, that's where they are. There's no point in even judging that. Like they can't wish to be somewhere they're not, you know, so that's where they are. So you just got to, you just got to leave it be. If you m maybe aren't in either or mode, that's fine too. That's not where you are. And the spiral allows you to see that without judgment, because like if that's where they are, there's no like my grandpa used to say, you can wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which fills first, <laughs> you know, like you can yeah. wish you can wish they see things the way that you do, but that's not going to make them see things the way you do. Mm. And you can't wish yourself to see things differently than you do. Like it just is. Don't live in this yeah. as if world because mm. that's not real. Yeah. <clears throat> you know what? I've been thinking about a lot more lately is um especially over the past few years is actual practice you know what i mean not um because so far so so often we get stuck on like the abstract um and even sometimes we even get stuck on the experiences like oh i had this one experience and therefore my one experience was objective and that this is the way everybody else has to experience it too yeah. and it, it, even that can happen but like when i look at the teachings of Jesus, um, what was he most concerned about? What we do, you know, mm. how we live our lives. Did we, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you housed me, you know? And, yeah. and, and I think what happens oftentimes is there are people who are either intellectual or even religious who they'll, they're happy with following the the rituals and, and going through the motions but then their actual practice in their life is unaffected by their beliefs and and i think that's that's where i i i'm starting to think and wonder if um and i think this isn't new you know the whole concept of faith is not uh, merely just something you intellectually ascend to um it's not even necessarily something you experience either but it's something, um, but it is an experience. I'm not saying it isn't an experience and I'm not saying it isn't intellectual or propositional, but it's not only those things, but it's, uh, but ultimately if it doesn't lead you to actual doing, then um, um, what's the point, you know? It's just <laughs> floating up in the air. Um, so I've been thinking about that, like, cause I have friends who are, you know, not Christians, either non 
believers are agnostic or maybe they're mm-hmm. Christian adjacent. Like I have one friend who's like Catholic adjacent maybe, and he loves the Catholic worker movement. And, and he's even, he quit his job and his career in, in finance to basically work with the poor. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I see Christians who are cradle Christians living their whole life, believing in the word of God and, and the church. And they're still working at their banks. They're still um, doing their thing, buying things, um, buying items that are made through sweatshop slavery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of their life is just not really changed. And, and it, it made me, it makes me pause and wonder like, wait a minute, is it really about what we intellectually ascend to? Is it necessarily even about um, our personal experiences within that, you know? Um, is it more about what we do? And, and is that the marker of, of, you know, there's the whole debate about justification and what that means. And the way I, I understand it is like, you know, the book of James, which is the letter of James, which is often like ignored completely, um, is very clear that, you know, we're not justified by work, by faith alone, right? We're justified by our works and, and our um show me your faith and I'll show you my, my good deeds, you know? Um, so there's some level of um, practical practicality where truth isn't necessarily something that is believed, ascended to, or even experienced, but lived out, you know? And when it live when it is lived out, it works and it changes things, you know? Yeah. I, don't know if that I think, th- no, I mean, it's um, what I was thinking kind of as you're talking is it's, um one of the ways that i often like to think about faith is um is a is this radical trust in things that i don't comprehend um because even t- to your point of even like assessing fruit one of the ways that you were talking about these things that we practice versus things that we maybe I think of, think that we think or self-identify with or belief, you know, like, what does it mean to believe it? Does that mean just thinking certain thoughts or self-identifying with certain thoughts? Um, you know, or your friend, the, the, the guy who's the agnostic who then is quit his, you know, his lucrative financially successful job to help the poor. Well, even, I think this goes to your point though, I think even the point that we were making earlier about objectivism, even our assessment of that is, is selective because how are we selecting our assessment of who's doing good works and who isn't? And there's certain metrics that we may look at that make it really easy to judge people. But again, it's like people, people are where they are. And so like even the persons who maybe are working at their banks and buying things with sweatshop and looking like consumerists, yeah, and maybe they are there to certain degrees, but like there are aspects that's kind of, you know, God knows the heart. And Jesus, like Jesus, one of the things in the New Testament talks about that he, you know, he saw he saw into the hearts of men for, for whatever reason. He was holy. You know, he had taken the log out of his own eye. And so he he was able to perceive his perception of reality was not polluted by delusion or illusion so he was able to do that i don't have a lot of trust that i'm capable of doing that so i try to i at least i aspire to really stay in this place 
and I'm not good at this. Like I'm kind of preaching here, but like, I'm not good at this. I really try to stay in this place where I've been trying to stay in this place of non-judgment. Cause I'm a very judgmental person. Like I grew up, I was, I was very formed in judgment. Um, and I, and I really struggle even with self-judgment quite a bit. And I, and I'm trying to get to the place where I'm building a muscle memory, a spiritual muscle memory where I, to, you know, to your point of like, why, why do I see what I see? Why is this thing popping to me? And, and should I trust that, you know, or should I, or should I doubt my ability to judge and assess and assert all these things, even when it comes to myself, because it's just, because like love is one of those things that's tricky. What, what this makes me think of, and then I'll shut up and see what you think. But like one of my favorite films um, and, and books, it's a, it's a film and it's a book about Christianity and faith is the book Silence. Uh, it's this book by Shizako Endo, and it was made, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, famous director who made the movie. Um, he's known for doing all the gangster films, the New Yorker guy. The heck, why am I blanking on his name right now? Italian sounding dude, he did. Oh, whatever. I think I know what you're talking about. I'll um uh, oh. it'll come to mind eventually i know what you're talking about i can't think of his name either he did that movie with leonardo dicaprio yeah. where they're just there's f-bombs like every other al, word. al something l <laughs> whatever it doesn't matter i want to say al um, pony but i know that he was just no. a gangster <laughs> no it ain't that um but it's uh, i can see his face but it's a really anyhow it's a really great film and and he actually wrote in the current release of the book he wrote an introduction to it and um this this artist Makoto Fujimura have you have you ever heard of this guy? He's a he's a current day artist who I really love who's really in the to the book for a variety of reasons and he's written companion books to it. Like I I went deep down this world of this this book and film. Like it's one of those things where I've read the book multiple times. I saw the film like three times in the theater. It's one of those things that just like really resonated deeply with me. And to the point of everything that I was saying is it. It plays a lot on uh, doubt and faith and knowledge and what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to doubt? Um, what does it mean to apostatize? Um, because it, it's this story of these Portuguese priests that go to Japan under, um, under this time of Christian persecution when they're trying to get rid of all the Christians. And, and there's, this heavy, there's this heavy push to find all the priests to eradicate them from Japan because then they just think like the faith will die. And so, but like the people that were doing it were, were very clever. And so one of the ways that they would have them do it, the priests apostatize is they would have this, it's called a Fumi, which would be like a, it was this, it's an icon essentially. And they would have an icon of Christ or Mary or something like that. And they would have um, either the Christians, the Japanese Christians or the priests, they would have them either step on it or like spit on it or something like that to show their relinquishment, their apostasy of the, of the faith. Um, and, uh, and this book just, uh, it's like, I don't know. It's so good. It's, it's like one of those things. It's, there's a few things that to me, at least from my perspective that I tell people when I'm just like, if you want to understand how I, how I really see Christianity and how it's formula. I'm like, silence is a book. George McDonald's Lilith. 
like watch Terrence Malick films. It's always these pieces of art where I'm just like, if you want to understand how I see Christianity, like those are probably the ways that will really form it in you. Um, but it's brilliant because, and it all to, to circle all back is just like the main character, the way that he understood fidelity to his faith and to God. Um, was something he really the he really had to wrestle with, and um, and it's a very Peter Rollins idea. It's just like he, Peter Rollins wrote this book called The Fidelity of Betrayal. It's one of his books, and and it plays on that. You know, it's Abraham, man. Like, what do you think of that? For example, Abraham is one of these stories that I think is just endlessly fascinating, and I've had lots of debates with my friend Nate about this. Is like, I'll ask you this question. Do you think Abraham, what do you think of the morality of the story of Abraham? Let's just put it that way. Like, do you think Abraham, when he was called to sacrifice Isaac, do you think when he was going to do that act, just tell me your thoughts on that. What do you think he was thinking? What do you think that implies about the nature of God, of faithfulness, of goodness? Well, that's a great I mean, like that story is a trip, man. What makes it so difficult is that we look back in time, right? And we're like, oh, this was like a type of Christ, right? But if I looked mm-hmm. at it like, I don't know, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes because it's not video, but quote unquote, objectively, you know, or even with a modern framework, like obviously mm-hmm. that would be ludicrous from, from modern times. But in ancient times, um, I, I often wonder if it's just the way he was interpreting the, what he, the spirit was speaking to him, you know? And and the fact that God didn't have him sacrifice his son, God was probably like, "Oh, whoa, whoa! I never, I didn't, I didn't tell you to do that, mm. man." You know what I mean? Um, because you know, you get weary whenever somebody says, "Thus saith the Lord," you get pretty mm-hmm. weary of that, right? Um, or whenever someone says, "God told me this," I mean, you gotta you gotta be weary of that. And it is curious, you know. I don't look at the Old Testament as like very black and white and maybe as, as I may have used to, you know, higher up on the spiral, um, fire, farther down on the spiral. Um, you recognize that there is an interpretive lens mm-hmm. in, within the historical context. And, and maybe child sacrifice was something that was going on in Abraham's culture, you know, um, mm-hmm. maybe there were some, well, obviously clearly in, in Baal, Baal, or whatever mm-hmm. that is they were sacrificing their children to appease Molech you know so that is a thing um but then like and that really affects how you view the cross today if you interpret that as um um Abraham is a is a type of the father and and Isaac is the type of the son like in the trinity mm-hmm. um well the issue you have is that the spirit or the angel, wh- whatever it was, the angel of the Lord, right? It wasn't, it wasn't said that it was an actual like angel, but may have been this very spirit itself. Well, if the very spirit itself says, don't, don't kill your son, take this ram instead. Mm-hmm. Um, then are we supposed to interpret that the, the father <laughs> and the son were um, not in agreement, you know, with the spirit, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I don't know. There's a lot that goes into that, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's, we have to understand it within its his its ancient text context and um yeah but then like that does have some implications on our atonement theory 
in the modern times, when we think of what happened on the cross, um, I don't think it was the father killing the son, you know, to get to get out his pent up rage or get his chunk of flesh. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you think about it in terms of this is why Abraham, that, that story is almost endlessly fascinating to me, you know, and I have ways that I lean with that, but it, but I think it's one of those things where there isn't the reason, you know, it's like the seminal story of Judaism like that and Moses, you know, um, and coming out of Egypt, but, but Abraham clearly, and that it's Abraham is the foundational figure of the Abrahamic faiths. I mean, that's the story because really like at its simplest level and it's endlessly fascinating and people have been talking about it for every, forever, like most of the major world religions, Abrahamic religions. And, um, and it's kind of because at the most simple level, I think well, what it is, is like the promise made to Abraham was through you and your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed, which that isn't just like some abstract thing. It's just like through, through your lineage, through your son through your seed. And so at its most basic level, what it is, is God commanding Abraham to destroy the symbol of his promise to Abraham. And, and, you know, it's easy. I think like, it seems like to me what your first take on it was like, well, you know, Abraham was confused about what God said, you know, essentially like, or like he was wrong by it. And I think, I, I understand that impulse because like you could have, I think that impulse is to somewhat um, remove it's, it's to somehow save God from some seemingly immoral, <laughs> like terrible act. Because, because if you say, if you just say bluntly, God, God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He commanded him to do it. And now, like, you could say, like, there's no, because I would almost say, like, there's no point to him commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac if Abraham was just like, well, this doesn't really count. And he's going to really, he's going to bail me out. Like, he doesn't really mean it. Well, then there's no point in doing it. it it's like a, it's like an empty gesture. It's, it's like a get out of jail free card. I actually think this is how Christians think of the resurrection often when they're just like, they're like, I don't actually have to be afraid of death because I'm just going to be resurrected. So, like, death isn't really a thing. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to take this belief in God thing, like my commitment, my self-identity, these ideas, and then I get out of jail free. You know, I get out of death free card. Well, I don't think that's what God was doing with Abraham. Because to me, that's not faith. That's anti-faith. But, you know, the book of Hebrews, right, does say that Abraham, if you're a Christian and you take this as canon— Abraham believed that that God could even raise him from the dead. Now, what's interesting about that, from my understanding of of this, is like resurrection wasn't a resurrection then, especially to Abraham, wasn't like a thing like it is to us now, especially in like this post Christian world. Even around like uh, First Temple Judaism, all the different sects of Jewish thought had different beliefs regarding resurrection. So, like, it wasn't even a common thing then, especially with Abraham. So, so essentially, Abraham was being called to kill Isaac with no context. Again, no resonance. There wasn't, there wasn't the idea of resurrection. That wasn't even around. There wasn't, no one thought of that. 
but yet Hebrews tells us like he thought that was possible no matter what he's just like I am going to kill him I'm going to I'm going to kill God's promise to me in this thing because he told me to and I don't understand it I can't comprehend it but I have such a radical faith that it's beyond my comprehension that I just trust God like I don't know like I will do this immoral thing even though I don't understand it like that's my take on it and Nate my buddy Nate is just like no that's that's that makes God a moral monster and I'm like well yeah that's but I think it has to, otherwise the the whole story loses its punch. Now I think if if God let him go ahead and kill his son, um, then we could make a consistent argument and be like, oh yeah, God commanded to kill his son, and he did it, you know. And yeah. God, what God commanded, he did. You know, that's the thing about like the commandments of God. What what is God actually asking us to do? You know, um, you know, understand that. That's a that's a great question there. Um, yeah. and maybe, yeah. well, that's why I beg the question of like, well, are we really understanding, you know? um, are we really understanding or, or, or did Abraham have his own interpretive lens, you know, um, that he was struggling to understand God or was God testing him to see some level of commitment? Um, but you know, that point you bring up about the fact that the promise to Abraham is that through his seed, he bless all nations. He has descendants as many as the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea, mm -hmm. um, you know, or the sand of the desert, probably. <laughs> <Not Mm -hmm. laughs> but uh, yeah, it wouldn't make sense why God would want him to kill his own, that the very means of that promise, you know, but yeah, I mean, looking at Jesus, um, Jesus knew he was going to die, but do you think Jesus, I mean, Jesus must've known he was going to come back. Obviously, you know, <laughs> there are certain, certain things that were probably veiled while they're just within time and see, space experience. See, I don't know. I wouldn't be inclined to say that. I would yeah. say, I would say Jesus had the faith of Abraham. Mm, really? Yeah. I actually think that's really important. <laughs> that's what's always bothered me about limited atonement because it's like, wait, if Jesus willingly went to the cross, but he was only, but um, isn't that kind of selfish of him to resurrect himself, but not resurrect everybody, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I'm going to be fine, but you know, some of you are going to be good, but most of you are, are not, you know, the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that kind of bothers me. Well, or like God, even the or even if he knew he was going to fail, you know. Yeah, I mean, even the resurrection stuff, though, is, you know, I don't, I say, you know, so I'm Orthodox, and so, I, you know, I say the creed, every liturgy that I go, and say the creed more often than that when I'm doing my prayers, and um, and it is a, you know that's in there we you know people talk about that but the but the problem with it and well and this goes to what the creed is like the creed is i think somewhat aspirational but also it's mystical like what mm -hmm. does it mean to believe in the resurrection of the dead i don't really know you know I've, I've said before and i think this is true i said i think christians understand the second coming and resurrection about as well as first century jews understood the incarnation or the first coming um, and I think that's not well. 
I think we think we understand it well, uh, but I think that's largely because we have this transactional relationship where it's a get out of death free card. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's what it is. I don't, I don't know what it is. Again, I think that undercuts faith. I think if you use, if you use mammon, your belief in resurrection that way, I think it actually subverts what your, what faith is. And so, I mean, people will talk about the physical resurrection, bodily, physical resurrection, you know, Thomas stuck his hand in people stuck. Thomas stuck his hand in his side. Mm -hmm. He ate fish. You know, I mean, I'm familiar with apologetics, you know, I know those Mm -hmm. stories and I, and I affirm those and I agree with them, but like, there's also weird things like on the road to, um, on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize Emmaus, him. Yeah. On, uh, you know, the, at the, in the, the garden, heard, they didn't recognize him. He disappeared the, from rooms. You know, it's weird. One of the things that um, that could be why they didn't recognize him is like just the very fact that he was Thomas touched his wound, right? <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? Jesus's resurrected body had his wounds too. Mm-hmm. That means his bloodied face. He was probably beaten to a pulp beyond recognition. So when he resurrected, yeah. he's like, probably looked like a zombie, honestly, <laughs> you know? So that's probably could be a reason. Or it was just, <clears throat> they didn't recognize him because their eyes couldn't see something that's transfigured and resurrected, you know? Their 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 eyes weren't mm. open. But the, it does say that he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures and even more of in a fractal sense to understand the word of God, to be able to even comprehend the word himself, you know? Well, right, That's that's a very... That's a very John Bear kind of oh, yeah. point. He makes that point all the time where he says, because he has this recurring sermon, like if you, he, um, or teaching where he will make this point over and over that um, explicitly in the upper room, when Jesus showed up with them, they didn't recognize him at all, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. Like there's just this guy there that they're all just like chilling with. And then all of a sudden, which, I mean, it's all weird. Like this is where none of these stories really make sense. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, he, he breaks the, he opens the scriptures to them, revealing everything about himself. And then he breaks bread. And so like, so in the opening of the, bear makes his point. So in the opening of the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread, then all of a sudden their eyes are open and they see him for who he is. Mm. So bear's point is that, in order to see the resurrected Christ and to understand him and to have faith is the exact same now as it was for the disciples. Cause he says a lot of times people will think like, well, if I was the disciples, I would just, you know, and I was there and I could just see this literal historical critical mm-hmm. stuff. And if I was there, then I would just, you know, the atheist is just like, why doesn't God just write it on the sky? Cause you wouldn't, cause you couldn't see it. That's not how it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not how faith yeah. works. You mm-hmm. wouldn't believe it. Uh, it it's sacramental gets into the concept of uh being born again too right which was kind of hijacked during the jesus movement in the 70s mm. it was all about born again you must be born again well what does that actually mean jesus was talking to a, a religious elite an authority and he's basically telling him like you need to start over your religion is 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 killing you you need to start yeah. over you need to be born again of the spirit yeah. you know? um throw not throw away the original but like you know you're you're so stuck you're so yes. stuck at the top of the spiral. You need to come, you need to get down to the. Well, that's you're, you're stuck. Yeah. Back to that. You're stuck in a circle. An idea that's been really powerful for me. So um, my, my crew, some of my friends from this little corner have been going through uh, Valentin Tomberg's meditations on the tarot. 
and um it's such a good book like it's crazy I, I mean I read some of it and I watch all their videos but one of the things that Tom Berg talks about is that um he talks about the closed circle of the serpent which is almost like the the Ouroboros you know like the snake eating its tail but it's just this closed it's this closed loop that has no life to it it's just this eternal recursion that you're trapped in forever um but then he says what what Christianity adds into it though is death and resurrection because death, the seed going into the ground is actually what frees the seed from its stagnant place. The seed goes in the ground and dies and boom, it brings forth much fruit. So then, so then the circle, all of a sudden the circle breaks and then you have a spiral. So it circles and breaks death and resurrection being born again. And it, yeah. and that, and that takes the circle into this ascension. And I think we often, and or you could even think of that as like revelation, mm, you know, yeah, all yeah. of a sudden you see, you see something new and it changes your whole reality. Boom. You break out of the circle. Like you're going around the circle over and over again. And then, yeah. and then a new pathway opens and it's going up or, or down. Yeah. Right? It's going down. Yeah. Oh, there's, now it's going down. Now I'm on another level of the circle. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, here's my question of all of this. How does it not become Gnosticism? You know what I mean? In what way? I don't like Gnosticism is kind of like this. I mean, it's a lot of things, isn't it? But but basically the idea that there's like this hidden knowledge, you know, mm. um, that which I feel like there are just intrinsically things that are quote unquote gnostic about christianity you know christian mysticism spirituality like just the fact that we say like there's things that you can't comprehend unless you were born again right mm -hmm. i mean how is that kind of like gnostic in a sense where it's like there's this hidden knowledge that you are not privy to unless you are born again unless unless you, your eyes have been opened by the breaking of the bread by the opening of the scriptures you know mm -hmm. well maybe the um so I think, I mean, Gnosticism itself is like a complex, uh, it's a complex thing. Like, again, it's not a monolith, right? Like, I think David Billy Hart is actually writing, he's, he's working on some things about Gnosticism that are going to be coming out because there's a lot of positives about Gnosticism too. That's, that's kind of interesting. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I mean, like most things, I don't know that I know enough to think about it, but what I would say is that maybe one of the, one of the freedoms and how this isn't Gnosticism is what the spiral shows you though, is like, there's this increasing, maybe here, let me say it this way. May, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is first is, is the, well, it's the whole book of first Corinthians, but I love first Corinthians eight, where it's just like, you know, knowledge puffs us up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows, he does not yet know he ought to know. But if he loves God, he is known by God. And so it's this knowing as you are known, which I would say is like proper knowing. Like that's how you should really know things is knowing how you are known. And maybe maybe this isn't Gnostic because the, the kind of proper knowing that God is calling you for is knowing that you don't know. Like that is the proper calling because that allows for the spiral that allows for repentance that allows for seeing for error correction mm -hmm. that allows, that allows you to see or to bring an Ian McGilchrist that allows your right brain to actually be the master because mm -hmm. that's the thing that sees what your left brain doesn't see, but it's inarticulable. But if that's always the master, you are always open to 
growth, to progress, to repentance, to seeing what you do not yet currently mm-hmm. see. And that's proper knowing. So it's not like Gnostic in the sense that it's either or. Now I've arrived. Now I'm here. Mm-hmm. Now everybody else is a dummy. Well, it's um, like it, with the spiral, you have, um, if, if you're thinking about that way, and if you kind of envision yourself, that's how you envision yourself and your spiritual walk, um, you, you know that there's deeper levels you know, that you haven't yeah. been, you know, that there's levels and then the, you know, that there's levels that we can't even access like in this realm of existence. Right. It's like, yeah, you'd have, you'd have so, no idea. It's so mm-hmm. far beyond you. You wouldn't even, there's nothing in you to even begin to apprehend it. Yeah. And, and so often we, we have this impulse to want to like prepackage faith, like systematic theology, right. Prepackage yeah. it into the <clears throat> understandable thing um and so that we can even sell it and and proselytize it and but mm-hmm. like it's <laughs> but it's always it's it's always lacking and and there's always something uh it's there's there's a level of depth that it just doesn't have and yeah it's, when, it's once not that abrahamic it, faith man once you're trying to sell it then it's like um then you think you're god and you think you can gatekeep truth and understand right and, and you try to control it mm. and you commodify it and it becomes all yeah. the grossest parts of religion control and and selling it like those are the grossest parts of religion you know abuse that's where all that comes from yeah well now that we've kind of gone down the spiral hole instead of the rabbit hole the spiral hole <laughs> on this mm-hmm. year pi day um <laughs> i'd like to hear more of your story so how you doing? Mm-hmm. How is uh where are you zooming in from? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minneapolis, well. But you're not originally from Minnesota. I am not I'm not a native. I'm from an adjacent state. I was born and raised in the state of South Dakota, which um for everyone who is not from one of the Dakotas, they just think of it as the Dakotas. And then they're just like, which which one? Doesn't matter to me. It's irrelevant. It's the one with uh, Mount Rushmore. Hmm. So um, they both have bad lands. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and um, it's... So, uh, yeah, I grew up in western South Dakota. So if you are from... Um, especially South Dakota, the the big distinction for South Dakotans is culturally, it's much more between East and West versus North and South. So Western South Dakota, where I grew up, I grew up right North of the Badlands, the South Dakota Badlands is kind of, well, I always tell people, like, if you've seen Dances with Wolves, where Kevin Costner's outpost is, that was probably filmed within, I don't know, like 30 miles of my house. Um, that's basically what it looked like where I grew up and, uh, and the culture of Western South Dakota is much more like, uh, like Wyoming or Montana or something like that than, um, than it is like Minnesota. So Eastern South Dakota is a lot more like Minnesota. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, a lot of, uh, it's very rural, right? Yeah, for sure. Like I, I just went back from my 20th year high school reunion and I hadn't been to my hometown in like 15 years because my parents don't live there anymore. And, um, 
and it was shocking man it was like culture shock it was weird <laughs> it was very strange um because even rapid city like the biggest city in the western side of the state near where the where in the black hills near mount rushmore like i flew into there and um and i was just like man there's like nothing here even like in the town the big city over there i'm just like mm -hmm. it's so it's so stark and desolate and you know it's like tumbleweeds rolling across sometimes literally it's weird yeah that's what's so fascinating about america is it's so diverse that like to get to try to get one idea of what it means to be american or even like it makes sense why there's so much divide in politics because like you have just different places different things work for different places you know and for sure <clears throat> for sure there must and be a lot of guns up. out there yes yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> i mean america in general has a lot of guns i don't know what the ratio is i've heard before you just talked to claiborne he probably knows how many guns there are to every person yeah i want to say it was like something like 100 guns for every person or something yeah. like that i don't know well yeah. there's 360 million people in america how many guns do you think there are 500 million a lot maybe so yeah to your point though i would say western south dakota um bumps the average up i think <laughs> they're sure. on the high end of that average what are they waiting for canada to invade <laughs> i don't know i think part of it is so like my dad for example i've said this before like i don't even i don't know how many guns he has i don't know that he knows um i mean hundreds for sure he has I, hundreds I of guns yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if i don't know i don't know if it's closer to a thousand or or i don't know i don't know i have no <laughs> idea and um he's uh my relationship with my dad is good it's always strange uh i always when i'm talking about my dad i always say that he the way that i describe him to people is growing up he always used to say to me who sired you boy or because <laughs> he because i was just a weirdo kind of in my family but who yeah he's got who sired you who sired, who sired you? you boy yeah what does that like mean? he's a so he's a cattle rancher so like who who's your sire who wh, for, who's your father oh okay um all right uh and he, i mean he was saying it lovingly my dad and mm -hmm. i have a good relationship but it's kind of just like where'd you come from you know mm. um yeah so yeah there's a lot of guns there's a lot of what are they waiting for i don't know like my dad for example he's i mean he's kind of a collector for him it's kind of in investment uh because i mean guns don't ever really lose value like especially if you have certain older guns um they just I mean, if you if you think broadly of investments, like I don't know, I don't even know what's comparable. Land, maybe, maybe. So that's part yeah, of it. Probably. Uh, he likes them a lot. Uh, he, you know, hunting is part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he definitely has them for self defense. You know, he's his his like pickup and like even his house and everything. There's basically like, which is funny to me. <laughs> I give him shit sometimes. It's funny to me because he has all these things up of like. I don't know, different jokey things, but not really jokes of like uh, careful break it into this house type of a thing. Um, and I'm like, why do you put those up? Because I mean, I kind of feel like this is your Freudian unconscious fantasy that somebody would break into the house. You could just start just like blowing shit up. So I don't know why you're warning yeah. them off. 
that's kind of how I, that's kind of what I recognize too. I think there, what scares me is not the people who just want to own guns for sports or hunting, or even people who are like very, um, what is it, soberly approach it with, with the idea of like self-defense. But then there are yeah. some people that are like, they're waiting, like they're, they're waiting for, um, like, I'm sure during when COVID hit, like all the doomsday prepper was like, I'm ready. This is what I've been mm-hmm. waiting for. Yeah. And the fact that it didn't turn out like an apocalyptic thing in the pop sense of yeah. apocalypse. Um, yeah. I mean, it was time will tell. So, yeah. So that's kind of, that's my dad. I grew up in West South Dakota. That's kind of my <clears throat> general thing. I mean, it, it's put me, so what's interesting about me and then, um, so my wife and I moved to Minneapolis. We've lived here for a long time. We've moved kind of all around. Um, we tend to go in circles of people, you know, you know me from the signal. I like to talk about philosophy and books and theology and all sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> you know, my wife, we're, we both went to four-year schools and did some post-secondary schooling and things. I mean, my wife did, I didn't. And um, I... So we're kind of a weird mix. We often say we're it's hard it's hard for us to find people to relate to because we have very like blue collar to less than blue collar roots. Mm, yeah. You know, I often say I'm half hillbilly, half redneck um, in my upbringing, and then and now we traffic we traffic in you know upper middle class, highly educated circles, and so it's kind of like. We feel a little out of place. We feel both in place and out of place in both worlds. So it's a weird, it's a weird mix. It's fascinating. So what kind of Christian tradition did you grow up in? Um, I always say evangelical mutt uh, because it's kind of uh, the church I went to growing up where my family was when I was really young was a, I mean, technically it was an e-free church. Um, but it's very small town, South Dakota. So like my hometown had, I don't know, it's it, when growing up, it probably had 1200 people. Now it's probably less than that. Um, I mean, I don't even know what it has now. 800, maybe it's shrinking. So it's a very, very small town. Um, and like nothing even around it. So like, how much does the evangelical free ethos get transmitted there? I don't know. So, I mean, very just standard. Um, it felt like a very standard non-denominational kind of bible church, you know? So I didn't even know. So growing up to all that, like, I didn't know what any of this stuff meant or, or I, didn't, I didn't have any theological words. Very, uh, very trained in Bible stuff and Bible memory. That was big for my mom. We did like Awana and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I knew a lot of Bible stories. There was always... Um, you know, illustrated picture Bibles around. And so like, I grew up with a lot of Bible, you know, I was homeschooled a few years on and off, went to some Christian schools on and off. So very Bible-y. Um, but then, but then I don't know, it, that's, and this is kind of what's crazy about evangelicalism. It's kind of like a traditionless tradition, you know, it's this weird thing. And so then Later on in high school, we went to like Methodist church in a, in a closer town for, I don't know, I don't know why, or a different town. And then in college, I went to just various Baptist churches kind of, but it all just kind of felt the same, you know? Um, and then 
um, until coming out to Minneapolis, we, you know, we started looking for a church and went all over the place. And so what happened to me was we came out here and I was reading, we we're looking for a church. And I was reading these two books at the same time because I was deciding to come out here. I was going to start getting serious about my faith again. I'd felt kind of like a hypocrite throughout high school and college. And I was reading two books simultaneously, which, and I didn't even know that this was weird. So I was reading Greg Boyd's book, Letters from a Skeptic, that he wrote to his father, which is a great book. And I was reading John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe. And I was reading them like in parallel. And I didn't even know that, that was weird because I didn't even know what, any, I didn't know what open theism was. I didn't know what Calvinism was. I didn't know anything. Like I'd heard of MacArthur, obviously. Um, I knew, you know, I had a MacArthur study Bible where he, you know, and, and I know that the notes, the sub, the, the notes about all the verses have as much authority as the text itself. I knew that. <laughs> um, so I just, and that's when I started going to all these churches. I went to Greg Boyd's church. I had a meeting with him actually, where I want to talk to him about his book, which that was funny. That was an interesting experience. Wait, did you actually talk know to him? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Yeah. That's super So cool. I didn't even, I didn't even know. <laughs> I had no idea what I didn't know at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I hadn't fallen off the peak of Mount Stupid yet. And so mm -hmm. I, I remember talking to him about his book and I remember him asking me the question because I was just chatting with him about all these throwing around all these words I didn't know what they meant you know Calvinism open theism because I was learning all this stuff at the time and he was like and I think I was kind of just a naturally born Calvinist and I remember talking to him and I was like so that's the right one I think and I said and I knew I liked Greg Boyd I liked his book I liked everything and so I was kind of like so he's like so which one of those do you think I am because I was talking to him and he's like I don't know Calvinist he's like you didn't read my book did you <laughs> and I was like no I did but I just didn't, I don't know. I, I just didn't know how to talk about any of that stuff yet. You weren't um, at that, that level of the spiral yet. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And <laughs> I, and so then I ended up, we ended up at Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is John Piper's church. Because um, my mom had heard of him, which it's all, I don't know. It's all interesting because at that point, my mom wasn't a Calvinist. Because what happened is I went to Piper's church when he was preaching through Romans I became a Calvinist and a very like adamant fundamentalist Calvinist because I'm just zealous by nature. Um, started reading like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Um, started reading Jonathan Edwards, was taking this class on Jonathan Edwards, the freedom of the will. Um, just like diving in deep. And then my mom wasn't a Calvinist at the time. She had recommended Piper to me. And I remember I started talking about Calvinism and she was very adamantly opposed. And and now she's a Calvinist that goes to like some Southern Baptist church and now thinks I'm a heretic because I'm not a Calvinist anymore. It's funny how all this works, you know? Well, what, what, what happens is I, I remember, you know, I grew up similar to you, non-denominational, but with the charismatic flair to it. So it was mm -hmm. very much about the movement of the spirit, experiencing God yeah. in worship and whatnot. So I didn't even know about Calvinism or Arminianism or anything like that. But yeah. I remember from a young age, like coming across on YouTube, you know, um Jonathan Piper and mm -hmm. being like oh he's really cool <laughs> another one that I really love is uh and I still he's like passionate. this guy this guy that I really like is uh, Alistair Begg he's mm, he's like yeah, a reformed yeah. pastor but just the way he's always the way he speaks about, he's Scottish um, he's Scottish <laughs> maybe it's just because he's Scottish no but he always makes like he kind of um you know how in Anglicanism there's kind of this erudite style yeah, you yeah. know um yeah 
Yep. Where they're Anglicanism they, definitely has a different flavor. Where they speak um with like a higher like he speaks like uses references from pop from culture, not just pop cultures, but like culture, and especially for him, like the 60s and 70s were really formational for him. So he mm-hmm. references a lot of like 60s artists and stuff like that. So I don't know, it just really mm-hmm. the way he spoke about it. It wasn't until later on that I realized that all these guys are Calvinists. I'm like, wow. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's funny. How, so how did you, I'm looking for a blanket because I'm cold. How did Over you come it. across, how did you come across Alistair Begg then? Um, we had a local radio station on AM, like an AM radio station. And I used to like, I was just in, when I first had my first car, I used to um, just scroll through the AM station and there was this one station that they'd always have preaching on. And I, as a good Christian, I liked listening to preachers. I, I thought it was really yeah, interesting for hearing sure. what they had to say. <laughs> and so on my um, way to college, I'd be listening to Alish DeBeg. And and every morning, because he was always in, between 7.30 and 8, he had a sermon yeah. on in, in his song. <laughs> it was such such a catchy song. And I'd be eating my cumbies. Inter- you know, intro jingle. Yeah. I'd be eating my Cumberland Farms sandwich and coffee. You don't have guys. You guys don't have Cumberland Farms out there. I feel like I've, I feel no like way. I've heard of it, but no. If you come Maybe out not, to no. the New England, there's this company out of Rhode Island called Cumberland Farms, and it's like one of those gas stations that just has like, just really great selection of um, oh. food that they that are it's frozen food that they just heat up in a in like okay. a convection oven. But it's really so it's, it's really not good. a. It's not like a mass distributed thing at grocery stores. It's like a gas station brand. It's a gas station and a, and a convenience store. But I, it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. places. Plus, they have an app that if you use the app, you get 10 cents off of gas. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Nice. But I used to get my cumbies on my way to school and um, listen to Alistair Begg. And he'd always, <laughs> I always enjoyed his preaching, you know? Yeah, it's so um, funny. I don't listen actually, to sermons at all anymore, but I used to a lot, man. Hundreds actually, and hundreds of those suckers. Yeah, yeah. Like four or five years ago, I like similarly, especially when I got married and moved away, we kind of like were on and off with visiting church and we didn't actually like officially become members to that church that we were visiting at the time. And um, mm-hmm. and I actually kind of had a my own personal like spiritual revival. And I was listening to Alistair Begg basically just preach through the um, the book of Ephesians. And still is one of my favorite letters of Paul. Like yeah. especially Ephesians one yeah. is just so deep and rich, so much rich theology and so much emphasis on the love of God. Like come that you would grasp the love of God that would, that would yeah. really take root in you. You know that um, just the pastoral heart of Paul, the way he yeah. he spoke, and and also the eschatological vision of like there there you have in Rome, uh, Ephesians one's that whole recapitulation of everything. You know. Which, of course, when he got to that point, and I remember, this, I mean, this way before I even knew what universalism was, but I remember him mm. saying, and, and there's a lot of people who consider themselves universalists who think this is talking about the restoration of all people and all things. Well, that's not the case, you know, basically trying Let to Let me just tell you before you even start thinking about it, that ain't right. Okay, so when it says that <laughs> God's going to recapitulate everything yeah. and restore everything, it's not, that's not what he really means. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Kind of yeah. Gaslighting me before I could even get on that train. But, but during that time, I had this like revival of faith mm-hmm. in myself. And, um, but I grew up like 
if I were to categorize myself very Armenian, like I believe that God died for all people, that everybody had mm-hmm. the, ch- the chance. But it was also like the downside of Armenianism is like it's all about you and your response, right? Mm. And and um, yeah, that kind of makes it even scarier in some ways because then you can like lose your faith and if you can backslide, it's all about backsliding, right? Oh, he's backsliding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's just funny when I think about these terms that would always get tossed around. Backsliding. So backsliding was a term that got thrown around in Arminianism a lot. I mean, Calvinists well, would talk about backsliding. Well, I mean, I think too, just but... in Christianity in general, but yeah, but I'd hear it all a lot. Like, because your faith was up in the air, you don't know. I mean, your your salvation rather is up in the air. You don't know. Like, um, and ironically, in Calvinism, you your faith is also up in the air because you don't know if you're one of the elect. You don't know if you're going to persevere to the end. That, yeah. that keeps people up at night. Um, well, and I would say it's kind of, you know, it's there's all these different ways of thinking about it. Because as you were talking, I mean, and like if I talk to somebody like Jason, for example, and I tell him I love it. Like, I love that he's such a like Jason's a, the Bible thumper of all Bible thumpers. I love it, yeah. You know, that dude is just like Bible all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I love that aspect of a lot of different. <clears throat> I love that's one of the gifts that I think that I'm very grateful for of my time in the, the whatever reformed Baptist Calvinist tradition is they are so that, that, you know, every blessing is a curse. One of, one of the blessings of this radical biblicism is they focus a lot on the Bible (laughs) and they, and they go through the Bible a lot. And it's not like, and that and that has gifts that come along with it you know it's it's not like the orthodox or the catholic don't have the bible they just have or, or like churches that use a lectionary they have the bible and they go through the bible in a way that is also helpful it's just different it isn't like this deep dive i remember that with macarthur like that's one of the things that i learned from macarthur and it was really good for me and my one of the reasons i love first corinthians is i use the macarthur macarthur bible study method on the book of first corinthians so like from piper I learned biblical diagramming and biblical note-taking. And so I would go through with all these different colored pens and diagram and graph in this way that I learned all the different connections and verbs and phrases and what is connected to what and arrows and all these. So like I have, I don't know where it is somewhere, but I have like my old ESV handy size Bible that if I flip through first Corinthians, it's just like a rainbow all over the place of just all these different things. And I just read because the MacArthur study method is you take a book of the Bible and you read it and you read it like over and over every day for like a month. And like you'll read the whole thing every day and then you go through it slowly every day in different ways. So you just like immerse yourself in this text. And like, that's awesome. You know, that's a really cool thing. It and is it's, cool. And it, um, you know, it's kind of like almost sacramental in a way, right? Because it's like yeah. you're immersing yourself in it. You, you're you reading it um, so that it gets infused into you. Um, yeah. And there's something, yeah, there's something which is kind of ironically, it's, you know, I don't know, that kind of divide between propositional versus like more experiential or sacramental. Because sacramentalism isn't really... It can be intellectual, but I feel like mostly just like experiencing and doing, right? And yeah. It's not that like just reading the Bible does something for you, but 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 they believe, as many Christians do, that when you read the Bible, it's not just like reading anything else. You're you're reading something holy, that's like uh, yeah. infused with some sort of authority and inspiration. For and sure, kind of, there's a is, lot of piety. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, it's great, and I mean, do I think 
do do I think then that they'll like because we all participate in the same like I was saying much earlier everything that you know is embedded in you know your family your culture your traditions all of that so do I think even though they have that practice and that discipline of bible reading I think then they go and impose because of this other cultural influence this is what I've always said a lot of people who are so focused on exegesis end up doing a whole lot of eisegesis you know, they're like reading all sorts of stuff into the text. And I'm just like, that's not there. Like you think that's there, but I don't think mm -hmm. that's there. Um, you know, it's kind of your, what you were saying earlier that, that uh, you pick and choose the things that you like from what the church father said. You do that with the Bible too. It's true. Yeah. You know, you'll mm -hmm. explain this away in light of this. Well, you know, that's what Jason yeah, always makes that point. And I think it's brilliant. Like you don't believe the Bible hard enough. You don't believe it hard enough. Yeah 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 uh-huh well that's like i don't know if you're familiar with like peter hyatt um yeah he was, he was pretty cool um when i discovered his stuff that was one of, that was during this time where i found myself um moving in this direction of under of believing universal salvation and peter hyatt's mm -hmm. he grew up calvinist but like the way so like the way he understands it is rather bardian um understanding mm -hmm. And Bart never like came out and said, I believe everyone will be saved, but but just like the the logical conclusions you can make from this theology is that like how can not everybody be saved, you know? Um, but with Peter Hyatt, what was I gonna say? Oh, what got him in trouble in his Presbyterian church where he was pastoring was reading the Bible, the Bible passages that the other ones ignore, you know, other people ignore, mm -hmm. like, behold, I make all things new, you know. Um and then as he reads, as he reads that, um, um, he didn't like qualify it by saying, well, we know that he's not making all things known or the passages that are like the all passages about, mm -hmm. um, you know, that in Christ, all, all things will be reconciled. Like, um, Colossians one is a great example. Um, yeah, he, he's the creator of all things. He's also the reconciler of, of all things. And uh, because he wouldn't qualify it and he's just reading the scripture as it is um they got upset with him and they even put him on like a church trial mm -hmm. so it's that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah yeah those uh those church church trials are always rough that uh <laughs> i've i mean i haven't i haven't quite experienced the full-up church trial but i've experienced um church I don't even know if you'd call it church discipline. I don't know what it was. It wasn't fun. I know that. <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of, um, that's kind of back to my story um, a little bit. If we want to jump back there. So like, I'll try to be quick. So like, speaking of universalism, and all these things, I, um, so I left, we left John Piper's church because we had to move and I ended up in this church called Sovereign Grace Ministries. And that's probably where I spent a big chunk of my time when I, our first stint in Minneapolis which they're like reformed charismatic. So it's interesting they call it continuationist now. Um, so it's a bunch of these people that pretty much grew up in like assemblies of God, but then became to like reformed Calvinist soteriology, so like doctrines of grace in, in relation to atonement. So then they're like these reformed charismatic. So they're, you know, an interesting bunch, um, mm. which is actually like what Driscoll was. John Piper's that too. Um, like all these kind of gospel coalition guys are kind yeah. of that um and gospel coalition is like 
the sugary pill with the hard pill inside you know like yeah it's good <laughs> it's good helps it go down helps, helps the it go down. down it's the pudding it's the spoon of pudding with the hard pill yeah that's mm-hmm. what it is yeah you're a you're a piece of shit covered with the sweet sweet pudding of christ's grace um so yeah <laughs> so then i um and then we moved and i and during one of these moves you know i got exposed to other people and other things a little bit you know i was reading i always read books that people didn't want me to read like i read all the piper books i read a lot of those prescribed books that everybody liked in those circles but then i was also reading things like blue like jazz rob bell peter rollins uh i read who are some of the other emergent cats i read i was i was looking at my i have a copy of blue like jazz that my brother was reading almost 20 years fantastic 20 years ago well i i read it recently and i'm like you know what this guy's a little a little too angsty like you gotta get over himself but at the same time i kind of understand in the in the historical context like with the whole bush war and right um and there's the emerging debate of like homosexuality like how do we deal Mm -hmm. with that in the public sector you know um it's crazy how recent all of that is just as a side oh yeah i mean it's not that much like for people that were (laughs) for people my age that kind of went through it like it seems it's both recent and and kind of old but yeah that whole Paul Vanderclay will talk about that too a lot. The emergent movement, because mm. people people love to talk about Driscoll because of that podcast that came out, and because he was kind of like, what was he? He was he was part of the I always forget this part of the emerging, but not the emergent movement. Wait, emerging was and emergent is different. Yeah, really, I thought he was just a reformed, like probably self i always figured he was like probably self uh ordained or something like that i don't know <laughs> well because part of it was i mean that split was kind of along political conservative liberal lines really so you know like someone who because i don't i mean this is the thing i don't even know what these guys are because rob bell was like one of the classic emerging guys because like uh, it, it was just Peterson? this yeah i mean Eugene it was just Peterson, this the new, bible yeah, it was just this new movement of kind of a, I mean, I don't even know what you'd call the major characteristics of it, kind of like. Um, well, I think on the good end, there was kind of this aspect, there was this focus on um, social justice that was arising, like trying to think more in those terms. And you had and you had all this leading up to, you know, Obama running for president. So like at the time like my brothers were really influenced by a lot of those those emerging theologians like brian mclaren eugene yeah brian mclaren um read some bono books yeah bono well that bono interview with eugene peterson which was really good my Um, actually my friend um shout out to johnny rogers uh aka cinder talk my friend made the background music he composed the background music for that interview. oh that's sweet yeah it's really cool he lives out in oregon i'll have to tell him that's sweet yeah, that was um that was a great interview. So like I, I was, actually haven't listened. I, mean, I need to check it out. So like I was taking in all this stuff, you know, like I wasn't I was reading Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and whatever. And I think and I think sometimes these people are hard to pin actually on in the culture war narrative between conservative and liberal because on because I mean a lot of people, for example, let's just pick like a couple good examples, like Tim Keller and Rob Bell, for example. Like Tim Keller is a reformed Presbyterian pastor in New York who like he's written a lot on social justice. He has a book called Generous Justice, 
which is a really great book on essentially social justice. And he goes through all these dynamics and, and it's funny, like even now, some people, I don't know, people that are politically inclined just are obnoxious to me in general, because I don't like politics, but I'm an anarchist. So I wouldn't, I love, so to quote, (laughs) to quote another reform guy, but Doug Wilson, he riffing on uh, Marx, he says, politics are the opiate of the masses. And I'm just like, Lovely, some Doug Wilson quote. Um, I hate love Doug Wilson. You know, I love. Yeah, me him. too. <laughs> me too. He can be I mean, so he, annoying, but but he's hilarious. He's one of the funniest writers I've ever read. Like I always bring this up, but he has this line describing David Bentley Hart, which is my favorite description of David Bentley Hart, where he says, "David Bentley Hart is in my in my rough estimate about three times smarter than me. The problem is, is that he writes as if he were five times smarter, and I find it off putting." <laughs> I'm just like that's such a funny way of describing him David Bentley Hart is down he's gone (laughs) down the spiral and he gets he no longer the like the more if you listen to his more recent interviews he's lost all of his patience he has no more patience for people who refuse to move down the spiral and and get on his level to some degree well and this is what I mean he's never going to listen to this but yeah. my impression of david Milley hart and i love a lot of his ideas but like he is and he hates it when people say this but he is still very protestant in this regard in my opinion in For that sure. he's a culture warrior mm-hmm. he doesn't like pe- people that are outside of the enlightened camp he gets I don't know really if he's a mad culture warrior i think he he actually leans more of like a socialist progress like democratic socialist progressive way i know um, but that's what i mean but people that aren't that he thinks are dummies yeah i mean i kind of get it because i think i probably lean more in that progressive camp as well like politically but i'm also very conservative in a lot of ways so it's like i don't know i'm a i'm a i'm a political mutt i guess you could say in that sense so um yeah go ahead i don't know what i was saying anyway your story so yeah how did you how did you end up getting to orthodoxy? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, so um, so anyhow, we were he, Minneapolis at Bethlehem at Sovereign Grace. Went to a bunch of other churches. Um, I was always reading other stuff, and then uh, the next major move I think is I was I was living in Washington for a while, Washington State, and I I came across this YouTube video between it was a debate it was apologetics i was into a lot of apologetics listen to a lot of greg kokel stand to reason who drives me nuts now um and and it was this debate between i forget the guy he was like a hispanic dude i forget his name Rodriguez, something rodriguez and chris date and it was on annihilationism versus eternal conscious torment and it's the first time i'd ever seen chris date but i was so schooled in like biblicist kind of exegesis the Bible is our authority. Like, what does the Bible teach? That like, that's the real power of Chris State, man. If you like, if you really listen to Chris State and you really believe in like sola scriptura, uh, you're going to become an annihilationist. <laughs> I would say like, it's kind of inevitable because like, if you take that approach, um, I think that's just where you end up. And, and so I remember listening to that debate and it was like a two hour debate or something. And I came away from it just being like, okay, like date kind of demolished this guy biblically 
like just made him look like a fool. And he kind of only had just like really weak ph- philosophy to respond with. That wasn't even good. But, and then, but I was just like, but that's, but that's not the right position. So I was like, what? And it, and it, and it was he one of those, your, like, he broke your, it circle. was a death. It was a death. Right. Broke your circle and, and forced you down the spiral. Right. It was, it was a liminal moment. And I, and so that sent me down this path where I went like deep into annihilationism and rethinking hell and listening to a lot of that podcast. And at some point on there, I became friends with Preston Sprinkle. And, and so I was like interacting with all of these ideas and annihilation. And, and, um, and so, and then at some point I moved to South Dakota, we moved to South, it was one of the other moves. And I remember I was going to go to a, a church plant, which was a sovereign grace church plant. Cause that's what I had known before. And I was still in that world, but I got together with the pastor beforehand and wanted to tell him kind of, you know, like, uh, I know this isn't the general thought of conception of hell, but this is where I'm at. And, and I just want to be upfront about that and tell you that's where I am. And, you know, and I would love to be able to process this in community. Cause I don't think we should be like reading the Bible in isolation. And, and I just prefaced all that and needless to say, like we were there a couple of years and like, it was, it didn't go well. It's like my worst church experience I've ever had. Um, the short version of what happened is, is I was getting together with this guy for coffees and, um, and we would talk about a variety of things and, you know, we'd, we'd often get into it and kind of conflict a little bit. I think part of it was, he's just more naturally temperamentally conservative and I'm not. And it wasn't even political. It's just kind of like, I'm very open to ideas and I'm not really afraid of new ideas. Kind of in the Jonathan Haidt way of being liberal. Like I'm very open, open to new ideas and experiences and, um, and they don't scare me. Um, and he just isn't really. And so then I was like, well, you know, Matthew 18, like how should we approach this? We're having trouble talking. So like, let's bring in a third party and talk about it. And so then I invited the assist, the associate pastor to our, to have a, just like talk with us together in my house. And then I go to open the door when the associate pastor shows up and it's not just him, it's him and the head pastor. And like, I could just tell like instantly, oh, like this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was. Like, this is like an intervention. This is like a thing. And it just, and it, and it just felt really um, gross, I guess is the easiest way to say it the whole time. And I basically got in this group with them. We were all sitting there. My wife is downstairs with our kids. And um, and basically the guy that I'd been meeting with all the time, like he basically just in that conversation came out and said, like, we're not really friends. Like I was just basically getting together with all you, with you all the time to take up your bandwidth so that you wouldn't like spread your heresy to other people. Like that's more or less what he told me. Um, wow. And I, rough. and I was... And I was just really, I don't know, like, that's like uh, it's like getting slapped in the face. Like I was very. How do you get someone to leave your church 101? Um, and so that was really, I don't know, felt really betrayed and lied to. Because, I mean, I think that's what it is. Um, I'd like, again, you know, like I think he was well-intended. It's the whole spiral. Like from his perspective, he was well-intended, I think. But like it felt really gross. And then. And then I told him, I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, I had no idea you felt that way. I was like, trust me, if you didn't want to talk to me, I wouldn't have been forcing myself upon you. Trust me. And then the head pastor basically told me, he's just like, 
oh, I think you knew. So then he was like calling me a liar and saying, no, I knew he didn't like me. And I was just like forcing myself upon him. And I was like, and so then, but then like, so I'm an interesting person because I have first percentile politeness. If you're talking like psych psychological big five. And so I'm really low in dis or I'm really high in disagreeableness. <laughs> I can be. And so, and so at that moment I was like, not only was I hurt, but then I was just like, oh, now you're like assaulting my character. Now you're like calling me a liar about something you would have no idea. Like, how do you know what my intentions are? Like, that's a judgment of which you could never know. And so then I got really pissed. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I basically said, and I basically just like called him out in front of in front of, uh, you know, the other two people that were there, the associate pastor, and then my former friend. And, and I said, just wait a second. And I said, I want to go get my wife. And I want her to come up here. And I want you to say what you just said. Because at that point, I'm just like, this is bullshit. And this is all a horse and pony show. And I just want to start and I want to start getting witnesses because like, believe it or not, I actually believe the Bible. I actually believe Matthew 18. I think you should have somebody else come in. And then if you can't find agreement, then you should take it to the church. That's what the Bible says. But like, this is the thing. They don't believe that shit. They don't want to take it to the church. They don't want this to become public. They want to control it. You know, they want to keep it like, keep it under wraps. And so then I brought up my wife who she, you know, and I feel bad for her, but she was the only option because she doesn't like this stuff. And then I had her come up and I'm like, say what you just said. And then he kind of like just completely changed his tone and didn't say it again. And, and I, and I just looked, and at that point I was just like looking around, I looked at my former friend, I looked at the associate pastor and I was basically just be like, are you guys seeing what I'm seeing? Are you cool with this? And they just sat there quietly. And at that point I was just like, this is a joke. And I just said, I'm done. I'm done talking. I'm not going to do this anymore. Like it doesn't matter. You guys don't care about the, you guys don't care about the truth. So I'm done. That's rough. And, uh, and it was really growth and, um, and I don't know, and, and that kind of, I guess, so that story and believe it or not, I ended up like apologizing to the pastor for how I handled it. Cause I didn't think I handled it well. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. Like church can be really culty in that regard. Um, and so all of that goes to show that like that, I think that thing was the beginning of me starting to see, um, this systemic weird evil of institution that i like to talk about a lot now um i got into like the tillich all institutions are inherently demonic and i don't know it just started this thing where from that moment on i was never i was never comfortable really in evangelical church again um i kind of always you know and i don't know am i am i projecting it all the time was it always there i went i actually went to a really what i would say is a really healthy evangelical church like the pastor there isn't like a manipulative liar <laughs> um and like this guy is not like evil he's not the worst guy ever he just whatever he just is where he is the pastor that did that to me well it's just um, weird because what he did is he basically was like okay this guy like in with a very fundamentalist mindset it's like oh this guy is a heretic and we need to we need to right. basically call him out but we don't want to make a big scene about it and and like i feel like they didn't even give you a chance you know they were they didn't even hear you out really that's unfortunate well but like, 
But like it's it's hard because I mean this had been going on like the context is like all these discussions had been going on for like over a year year and a half, and I just slowly saw over time that like the whole idea of being Berean like with the doctrine of hell for example do you really want to be Berean and and search the scriptures and see what the Bible really teaches about hell the truth is and like granted this was a church plant so like they're just trying to stay alive but like in reality is like they don't really want to search that. You don't want to change your ideas about that. Like one of the tenets of your statement of faith is like an affirmation of eternal conscious torment. So like, are you really willing to semper reformanda rethink that? I don't think you are. I think you think you are, but I don't think you actually are. Um, and, and that, and I, so I started seeing that it wasn't just the problem of hell for me anymore. It was the problem of the inability to repent of wrong theological confessions like that thing that kind of like institutionalized dogmatism is what started to really bother me um and and then the short version is is then like i went we moved back to minneapolis i went to another church and um and i just wasn't ever at peace there again and you it know, got to the point where my wife was the church well this wasn't a but here's the, here's the thing. Like, I never, I never understood. I never fell into the camp of like the ex-Christian atheist, ex, ex-evangelical, or like even, even going from like a conservative church to then swinging to a radically progressive evangelical church. I never really understood that because it's not like, I never stopped believing what I believed. It was just like, I think, I don't think you guys believe it. Like, I don't, I don't think the problem, it's kind of like how Michael Martin, this guy who goes with Grail Country all the time, he'll talk about, like, he ta he's a biodynamic farmer. Are you familiar with him? And, like, is big into sociology, and he's a poet and a musician. He's, like, this modern-day um, polymath, and he's awesome. He's, he's a brilliant guy. But he talks about, like, a lot of the COVID stuff. And he said, it's just funny how like all the liberals and the progressives who used to be really cynical of big pharma and vaccinations, like if you used to go to the Pacific Northwest, they used to like, those were all the unvaccinated people. And he's like, and then all of a sudden they did this hard switch, just like, oh, you don't love people if you don't get this vaccination instead of being like critical of it. And he's like, what happened? Like, I'm the same. Like, I'm still the same guy who's been cynical of all this to begin with. But like, you guys all changed, <laughs> you know? I felt like that with church. I'm just like, I'm not, mm -hmm. I still believe this stuff. And, yeah. and I just want to talk about it. Yeah. For me, like that was one of those eye-opening, I mean, the most eye-opening event was seeing how the church, how Christians have specifically evangelicals reacted to the pandemic in 2020 and also reacted to that specific political year. You know, mm -hmm. um, they doubled like, in 2016, people hesitantly voted for Trump just because they were voting for the party. But then in 2020, people doubled down. And that was really eye-opening to me. And then like, yeah, to seeing, yes, I understand that whole like aspect of uh, the vaccine stuff. A lot of that stuff is like, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of also um, fear-mongering, virtue signaling there. But at the same time, it's just like, it's just a general sentiment. You know, that's what I think is almost more um, real than the actual implications is like the, the sentiment and the spirit behind certain people's beliefs, you know? 
and like i feel like back in like for example back in the day if you if you talk to a christian like 10 15 years ago they'd have no issue talking to you about the issues of racism in our country or you know they have no issue but now if you talk to a uh uh right-wing evangelical today i know i'm not gonna say right-wing even just like a christian today who's also involved in politics um they they have such a hard time having that discussion because it's it almost has become like an attack on their very identity you know and and that's what's really fascinating and that's kind of what yeah. been eye-opening for me that was a tipping point um for me like just seeing the fruit of people's lives you know and it's kind of like what you're saying like when you actually when you see what the underbelly of evangelicalism man it's not pretty you know yeah i mean it is and it isn't you know because like we were saying there's a lot of beauty there um but it's it's complicated and they're very deep systemic issues you know that all, like all that the racism stuff like that's what's currently going on i don't i don't know the status of it but it's currently going on at southern baptist convention right is they're dealing with racism and social justice and critical well, have all theory these, problems and you have all these historically black churches that have no issue talking about racism because they have no other choice it's it they're very their very survival depends upon it you know and then you have so you do have like this almost segregation that's happening within the Southern Baptist Convention. And a lot mm -hmm. of black historical black churches are leaving the Southern Baptist, which yeah, you know, it's I a it's, fine. It, it's such a weird, it's such a weird phenomenon. Cause I mean, my parents go to a church that I think is in the Southern Baptist Convention, although they have a degree of autonomy, I think. And and it's, I don't know, it's one of those places where I, I struggle, I struggle in those kind of conservative Baptist Calvinist churches. Um, and, and that's what I know. I, like, I think I would struggle in the progressive churches too, that are more social justice because people become, I said this to Preston Sprinkle a long time, people become very dogmatic about things that they know little to nothing about. Um, so like my parents' church, you know, cause I asked her, I asked my mom about some of this stuff cause I knew this was going on or I'd heard that it was going on, you know, the schism that's happening in the Southern Baptist convention. And, you know, these people will talk about and they'll do seminars on and, and lectures about, you know, critical theory and what's wrong with it. And then I think like, like if I sat down with some of these people and I'm not saying I'm an expert on it, but I think I understand and know what critical theory is a little bit and where it came from. And I'm just like, if I tried to sit down with you and have a conversation with your pastor, let's say on critical theory, I don't have a lot of confidence that he would even be able to tell me what it is. So like, I don't know how people can have really dogmatic positions about something they don't understand. And I actually think it's true on the other side too. I don't think a progressivist church that's really pro-social justice could understand what critical theory is and what someone on the conservative side maybe is concerned with. And so then I'm like, so then what are we really fighting about? Like what's, what's happening? Like, what is that phenomenon? There was like a, Tim Keller had a video also, actually, I'll post it in our signal chat after this. Yeah. But um, it was with Michael Horton and Matt Chandler. I don't know if you know who those guys are. Yeah. Um, probably like 10 plus years ago, but it was a gospel coalition video, I think. And the title of the video is like how to talk with those with whom we disagree, I think. And Tim Keller brilliantly in there illustrates this point where he says, when you're having a disagreement with something, you want to be able to state 
your the person you're talking to's position so well that not only will they agree with you, but they would say like, oh, that's even better than I could say it. And until you get to that point, like you haven't even begun to understand their position. And to, your, and to like the case that we're talking about, the example we're talking about, social justice and critical theory and conservatism and Trump and all that, like I don't, I don't think either side has a clue what they're talking about, but they're very confident. <laughs> they're often talking past each other and also yes. like the straw man that's in our minds is the most extreme form of the other. Oh, you know, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the whole issue is like, are you battling the real thing or are you talking about a straw man? And that's something that I've really been trying to um, test myself with. It's like, okay, I have a disagreement with someone. Am I disagreeing with, and that's actually gotten me in trouble because then you assume what people believe, you assume <laughs> what people are right. thinking in their heads. Um, but anyway, as we draw to a close, how, how did you get to orthodoxy? <laughs> Let's get there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's the end. We've been circling in and out. So that's the end. So I went to this last evangelical church, probably, I don't know. And I don't know how long ago it was now, seven years ago or something like that. I, I just realized finally that I just couldn't do it anymore. And part of that was, is I would go to church and I'd be wanting to talk about these systemic issues that I was talking about. And I just couldn't get anybody else to see it. It's kind of like what you said. It was like speaking another language. And and I was just upset all the time because like, I'm, I'm, I really am kind of a zealot and I get so passionate about these things, especially when I was younger, I've learned to chill more as I've gotten older, but um, that I was just upset all the time where it was bleeding over into our family life, where I'm just upset and about everything because of my frustration with church stuff. And my wife was just like, we have to, we can't do this. Like, we have to figure this out. Like, this is we just need to go to a different church. We need to do something. And I had been, at that point, I had been exposed to enough Orthodox theology from the outside and just broad ways that the Orthodox think about things differently. And I had enough appreciation for their theology that I was like, well, I guess I'll just check it out. And it was so weird that like, we just started, we just started, it was, it was a cold not cold, but I mean, it was just like a hard stop where um, one night I remember Pete Enns was in town and I went out to a Pete Enns lecture and I'm actually, it's on YouTube too. I'm like the last question, the Q and A of the night, but um, I was talking about him with all this because I, I didn't go to a small group. I went to this Pete Enns lecture and I basically had this conversation with Pete Enns in the question form of like, I don't know. It's like I'm speaking a different language now and I don't know what to do. And and so then we, we just started attending the Orthodox Church, and I basically never, never looked back because I'm, I'm pretty open to things. So like the difference in the liturgy and the culture never really bothered me. It's just different. Um, and, and I love, I don't know, and I love everything about the, uh, the theology. And it's hard, you know, I mean, there's, there's complications with it. This has been coming up in little corner conversations recently where I think there is a degree, or to your point, like your conversation with Brad Jerzak, there's a lot of converts to orthodoxy that are just Eastern Rite evangelical. Um, I think that's true. Like, what does it mean to be orthodox in America? You know, I don't know. Those are big questions that I don't have the answer to. Um, but that's how I got there. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. So, yeah, I, I do. I can see how, like, you know, theologically, 
as as strict as not strict, I don't want to say strict, but as like settled as a lot of doctrine is in orthodoxy, there's also a lot of room for um for wiggle wiggle. There's a lot of wiggle room too. In, Dude, uh, interpretation. And, and one of also my favorite... because they're not yeah, because they're not so um scholastic and propositional about it, like they don't have systematic theology, you know what I mean? Where it's like yeah. you must believe this. If you don't believe this, then then or else. Yeah, no. They they approach things so mystically that it's like there's so much mystery involved and in, in like yeah. Um what were you saying? Well, one of one of to illustrate your point, my priest said this brilliantly. This is a quote that I quote my priest on all the time. He was giving a sermon. Um and he said, you know, people could look at orthodoxy from the outside or just in general and, and look at all the structure and say, like, it's very conservative. And it is like it's hyper conservative. It's not changing the liturgy, all that, uh, the, you know, the, the icons, the, the, the garments, all of that. And he says, but then you have to ask, and this is always the question with conservatism is like, what are you conserving? And he says, in orthodoxy, we're conserving hospitality. Wow, and I was just beautiful. like, and I was just like, damn, that's why I like orthodoxy. Yeah, talk right about there. conserving the good things, conserving the yeah. things that actually cost us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of times, the things that we want to conserve and preserve are the things that allow us to remain in our power and privilege and authority. But yeah. real, but not none of the death. None of the death. Imagine conserving laying down your life for another person. Imagine conserving. Um, I mean, all throughout the New Testament, you have the scriptures about yeah. this is this is pure religion, um, taking care yes. of the the uh, orphans and widows, widows and or- orphans, widows and remaining unstained from the world. Well, how do we remain unstained from the world? Well, the way the world works is transaction, right? <laughs> yes, 100 percent mammon and you can't serve yeah. God and mammon. Maybe we should let's close on this. I, I've often thought this recently. What is the way to conserve hospitality in the modern world, in the world that we live in, in the Christian landscape that we live in in America? You know, back to the spiral to bring it back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe it looks like dying to our self-righteousness about our self-identity to certain ideas. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Which I don't know that we're really very capable of because we equate that to holiness. And I don't mm. think it is. Yes. And and to end on an even better note, um, toll houses. <laughs> <laughs> No, in all seriousness, seriousness, I, yeah, that's a great point. We're conserving, we're conserving the good things: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, loving our neighbors as ourselves, praying against such things there is for. no law. Yeah, against such things there is no law. That's that's one of that. I mean, obviously, I feel like that should be the very that should be our life, all of our life verses. You know, um, there's a few life verses out there, but that's a yeah. good one. That's a really some good ones in the old Bible. Mm-hmm. Note it, Jason. Yeah. Didn't know that one, did you, Jason? Bible nerd. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he can tell us exactly <laughs> what what chapter and verse, what was it, chapter six of Galatians? I think. I don't know. Uh, yeah, fruit of the spirit. Yeah, I think so. Chapter five or chapter six. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I've been Orthodox for seven years. I don't care about the Bible anymore. Yeah, you don't care about the Bible. They, they probably don't even have verses anymore. It's just you just read it. You read it off the scroll, right? You know, that's right. In Greek, in Kine Greek. That's or, right. I don't know. Is your is your uh, Orthodox? What's the what expression is it? Is it is it? In it's expression? an O. It's an OCA. So it's the Orthodox OCA. Church in America. Okay. Yeah. Far out. So it is the 
the the American, uh, I guess what you'd call it. Like I don't know that it's a. Is it old calendar patri- or new calendar? New. I don't know that it's patriarchy um, because that's what. Yeah, I have a buddy at a a local buddy here who goes to a Russian church, mm-hmm. um, and and they're yeah they're on a different calendar because often they're. All right. Um, Wait, does that mean? At a Greek or because most Greek Orthodox churches are new calendar. Does that mean they have the same the same Easter as everybody else? Um. So I th- I think it's um. This is a question. I don't know. I feel like I mean it's not necessarily a Western calendar because well because this that's a good question. I don't know because at my church very often our Pascha doesn't mat. I mean what isn't the same as like Western Easter. Um. So I guess that means they're like a different calendar, but I don't think that's the same. I don't know that that's like the Byzantine calendar. I don't know. I'm not a Julian person. Gregorian. There's one that is objectively true yeah. and the other is going to hell. So <laughs> that's right. That no, note, we know that. <laughs> on that note, thanks for joining me, Luke, and um, going down Peace. the spiral hole here on this Pi Day. Happy Pi Day, everybody. Get your pie. Happy Pi Day. Um, 3.14 blah 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 dot 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 um, yes i think the dots are before but yeah, yeah. or dot dot, down, dot like keep going yeah come down that that spiral with us everybody we invite you to go to the next level um, yeah get receive the hidden knowledge of the we, archons we, we, and the another way to say that is like uh we encourage you to join us and die die so each each circle you die and go down and the circle the circle breaks. I think yeah, I think they think I think most people would say in spiral dynamics up, but whatever. It's all oh, relative. Up. It's fine. Oh, that makes more sense, right? Up towards God, because God is <clears throat> and then God at some up. point it's just but God is also same. down, man. Jung, like people don't see God because oh, yeah. they don't look low enough. Mm. He's at the bottom of society, he's in the poor. <clears throat> in the cracks, that's how the light gets in, mm. right? Yep. Well, brother, have a great evening. And yeah, same. Day. You got snow Thank out there? You. Oh yeah, there's a bunch. Bunches. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh yeah, it's coming down hard in the, in the east. Yeah, it's right. not snowing here, thankfully. But uh, okay, peace. See ya. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath. It's not an easy path. But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust